0: Uh, When my father, Nigel Glendinning, died last year, I spent a long time at his house sorting through his books and papers, boxing them up and trying to select what to keep and what to let go. He'd been a professor of Spanish, so there was a lot, and I mean a lot, of academic stuff in great piles around his house. Among the papers, I found this. A copy of his inaugural lecture, it was called Literature, the Sciences and Other Subjects. So you can see philosophy, the public and other subjects, we're talking to each other. Well I read it with the interest of a son, but also knowing that I too had the task to come. And to my great surprise his inaugural lecture concluded with the concrete proposal to abolish inaugural lectures. Well, here I am giving one myself some 50 years later, so he clearly failed in that concrete proposal. But that failure in his inaugural has given me the unexpected chance to look again at his reasons in mine. I'll suggest that his reasons are, in fact, unassailable, but that they are not conclusive. In this lecture, I'll argue that an inaugural lecture worthy of of the name still has a future. Whether I'm going to give one is another matter. Well, my father gave his inaugural on the 24th of November 1964, which was 19 days before I was born. My mother, who is here tonight, uh, was in the audience on that occasion too, which she reminded me means that I was sort of there (laughs) as well. Well, I'm not in the audience tonight, though I rather wish I was, and of course my father is not in the audience tonight either, and I dearly wish he was. But at the other end of life, he will sort of be here too. I'll be reading something he left us, something explicitly addressed to others who are not Spanish literary scholars. Here he is about ten years after his inaugural, doesn't look a bit like me until I do
1: this.
0: (laughs) Well, as another who has improbably become a philosopher, I was surprised to find in his address something of me, perhaps. Not yet speaking, but still sort of there. But it's something which might be turned against his own abolitionist theme. My father's lecture was given a full two years after his appointment to the chair of Spanish at the University of Southampton. He was only 34 when he gave it, which is humbling. And he admitted that it might be thought a retrogressive step to go ahead in those circumstances. Such a delay was not a professorial example for others to follow. But he then introduced a theme which I'll be taking as mine tonight as well. It may be thought retrogressive to give an inaugural lecture after two years in post, but that still assumes that there might be a more timely time, a time in which it might be the right time to give such a thing, a time in which the sort of thing one does on such an occasion would continue to be timely in every other time when it was on time. This he did not take for granted, stating this boldly in his opening remarks. With more reason, it might be thought to be retrogressive to be giving an inaugural lecture at all. As I say, he will conclude that such occasions are retrogressive and that they should be abolished. I want to explore his reasons here and up to a point defend them and then in what I suppose might also be seen as a classically parasitical gesture. I'll give reasons for retaining something of the inaugural gesture he wants to abolish. But I think my reasons are in his text already. Sort of there, anyway. we'll, we'll see. Well, following his bold introductory remarks, the lecture gets going with a short and rather anxious reflection on the transformation of academic publicness that is brought about by the possibility of its televised communication. And I'll come back to what he says about that at the end, but it's important to see its general continuity with the setting we find ourselves in here. In a normal lecture, an academic is given a platform to speak, and to speak more or less uninterruptedly, by the attending scholars and students. But in the inaugural lecture... This uninterrupted speaking is not addressed to fellow scholars and students, but, like a televised event, to a general audience. Dad's words, a general audience. And it is this variation of the normal university setup that he seems to find so problematic. In particular, it seems only to invite, or at least has hitherto only invited, a perfectly wretched construal. He says, little more than an opportunity for the newly appointed expert to speak on a subject at rhetorical length and in a manner that seems always to be assertive, a dogmatic setting forth, and hierarchical. The chair is telling how it is to the public, who receive it in respectful silence, passively taking in the professor's words. Well, my father found nothing to admire in that. The kind of contribution he felt more in keeping to what he called academic life has a completely different character. What the academic can best do is more modest and shrinking, he says. Providing subjects for discussion and proposing matters for democratic debate. Now this moment of Opening up a space for discussion and debate may seem more modest and shrinking, as my father suggests, but I want to suggest in turn that it remains, for all that, a fundamentally inaugural moment, a decisive moment, a kind of moment of madness and assumed responsibility that inaugurates, launches something, and does so with a view to making an event take place. And not just any event but a discussion promising to be democratic and oriented towards truth. My father contrasts this supposedly more modest moment with the dogmatic setting forth of the truth by the disciplinary expert. But it remains a setting forth on his part nonetheless, and perhaps even more so. Indeed, it is the inaugural gesture par excellence, prior to democratic debate, Prior to speaking in the name of truth, it is a moment of responsibility in which we try to make that event possible, an event that will be inseparable from the essence of the institution in which it takes place, and hence, in a certain way, founds the university itself. And if that space of free discussion is what we want to cherish and, in some way, to reproduce in and as the heart of the university. Then my father thought that the lecture form with its dogmatic setting forth and its silent audience seems exactly the sort of thing that you don't want to foreground. And so he concludes this part, why then, you may well ask, am I standing here this afternoon instead of conducting an inaugural seminar, an inaugural tutorial, or an inaugural class? Although he had highlighted the fact that the inaugural lecture was a distinctively public event, an event of speaking freely in public to the public, I don't think he found in that idea enough fully to justify it. There is, I think, a somewhat closed-in or even cloistered vision of what he called academic life is in play here. He speaks of the modest and shrinking nature of the academic contribution when he recalled that it finds itself or is most itself when it takes upon itself the responsibility for providing subjects for discussion. But as I've already indicated, that is already a decisive moment, worthy of attention, and also, I will argue, one that can and should be capable, at least in some formal format, of being extended beyond the confines of the cloistered university. But worried by its form, my father invited his audience to wonder why the inaugural lecture is the thing and not the inaugural seminar or inaugural tutorial or inaugural class. And we should take that invitation seriously because the inaugural moment is so clearly there in those other settings too. Not just in the moments where the professor selects subjects for discussion and so omits, or overlooks, or even excludes other subjects. But also when the professor selects the texts through which we will discuss them. What we might call the process of making certain themes and texts canonical happens here. It's the event in which a community with a history gives itself a literary or intellectual heritage. And a future, handing on thoughts thought best for thinking. Well, I've been teaching texts by Nietzsche for the last two weeks with my students in a seminar. I chose the texts, or rather they imposed themselves on me as unavoidable. One of them is the famous and very short text called The Madman, in English, The Madman, in German, De, De Tollmensch. It is the text where Nietzsche writes the words, God is dead. It is a classic. Canonical. No doubt about that. But, and I'm sure my father would agree to this, it would be quite wrong to take that to imply that we now know what this text means and can simply communicate this to new students. On the contrary, it seems ahead of us still, remaining to be read, In fact, this remaining to come of its reading may be better programmed into this particular text than almost any other. Nietzsche's madman reflects at one point that he has come too early, that the subject matter he pronounces as mattering most, the news of the death of God, has not reached the ears of those non-believers in God who were just then in the marketplace where he spoke. The event of which the madman speaks is not over. And no more is the text which speaks of it. My students and I, and we were, we discovered predominantly ourselves, the marketplace atheists into whose midst this text arrives. We spent an hour and a half seeking its sense and coming to see that far from being the expression of Nietzsche the atheist, as it is still too often supposed... This great and inexhaustible text shines in a fundamentally Christian light, the light in fact of an eternal Saturday, the Saturday after Good Friday and before Easter Sunday. Reading this text with my students was for me a wonderful time, untimely, right on time, but by no means over and done with, and not just for them, but for me too. I think the American philosopher Hilary Putnam was right when he said that you can tell a work of philosophical genius because the smarter you get, the smarter it
1: gets.
0: (laughs) Derrida said something similar when he said, Plato's signature is not over. And he went on to say the same of St. Augustine, and in fact of Nietzsche. These texts are not over. However smart we are, they still lie ahead of us. And we are in the event that they inaugurally sent our way. And if we take our time with just that little list, Plato, St. Augustine, Nietzsche, and map it on to Derrida saying elsewhere that our dominant heritage, the European heritage, might prudently be spoken of as Greek, Christian, and beyond beyond that he explicitly linked to Nietzsche. Then we can also say that the European heritage, Europe itself, is not over. And that this work of reading is part of what gives it a future. In every inaugural moment of its selected reading. Here is the Derrida text about Plato, St. Augustine and Nietzsche in which, as you'll see, he rounds on those who thought perfectly stupidly that his work wanted to destroy the European heritage. I love very much everything that I deconstruct in my own manner. The texts I want to read from the deconstructive point of view are texts I love, with that impulse of identification which is indispensable for reading. They are texts whose future, I think will not be exhausted for a long time. Plato's signature is not over, yet finished. Nor is St. Augustine's, nor is Nietzsche's. Well, I may be a bit mad myself trying to teach the likes of Nietzsche and Derrida to my students at the European Institute. And I know I speak too much when I do. But I'm still learning to teach. Heidegger said of the teacher, the true teacher is ahead of the students only in that he has more to learn than they, namely the letting learn. Well, I honestly feel I'm still a beginner. This theme of learning and letting learn will come back, but I'm digressing. I want to return to the reasons my father gave against the inaugural lecture. Now, one of the main themes of his lecture was to show up the shortcomings of C.P. Snow's famous Two Cultures claim, made only five years before his own inaugural address. The claim that there was hostility and dislike as well as incomprehension between literature and the sciences. However, having disagreed with this idea quite a lot in his lecture, my father concluded his discussion of that theme by agreeing with Snow on one major point, namely that what he called Snow's original attack on Snow's words, our fanatical belief in educational specialisation. And at this point, in his concluding paragraph, my father's antipathy to the institution of the inaugural lecture, capital I, capital L, which he had let drift from explicit attention after the opening of his text, returned with full force. And it returned with something I know from going through his papers was utterly typical of him. He did not just write an inaugural lecture, but took an interest in what others have made of it before him. And at the end of the lecture, he relates what he had learned from what he calls a brief study of past inaugural lectures. Perhaps some of those who had given them were were in the room just then, but despite the hilarity he must have known it would provoke, the madman, De Tolmensch, my father, ended by advancing his own almost deicidal concrete proposal as its conclusion. May I tentatively suggest that we broaden the basis of our academic studies and above all abolish Inaugural Lectures. Well, speaking two years late, he already spoke too soon. His words have yet to reach the ears of the professoriate in the marketplace, those who, he says, talk about their subject and then ask for more money for it. (laughs) His criticism was that the inaugural lectures he had read had their main purpose, Not in any broadening of our studies, but in great and fanatical efforts at well-financed narrowing. He was not urging us to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to throw aside, he says, he's not trying to throw aside the whole idea of specialisation. But he found in the inaugural lectures that he reviewed a format and a form of that idea that he thought not worth preserving. And yet he added something else in a sort of self-justification. A word that will be, for those of us who are not as close to music as he was, barely audible. He said that, unlike those other lectures, his own inaugural lecture aimed to be, he says, a movement in rondo rather than sonata form. Now, I haven't done the research this distinction deserves, Or that my father would have been able to give it. But the basic idea is that in rondo form, a principal theme in music alternates with another theme or other themes, sometimes called episodes or digressions, that go beyond and perhaps contrast with the principal theme. It's not a closed form, but embraces contributions beyond the inaugural movement. The sonata, by contrast, is typically performed by a solo instrument and usually in a single key, in a single voice, as it were, and what it most wants us to hear, one might say, is itself. What my father objected to was not what I'm calling the inaugural moment, but the narrowly disciplinary voice that marked inaugural lectures in his time. What he had read was the very opposite of what he thought ought to be the case. The inaugural lectures he reviewed were precisely assertive rather than tentative, exercises in the dogmatic dogmatic setting forth at rhetorical length of statements made from on high. Chairs rather than triposes, he says. The sonata, not the rondo the self-authorised disciplinary voice of authority on the truth, rather than the opening of a democratic discussion. He preferred, then, those occasions where different involvements and different subjects are held together, not held apart. And he listed literature, politics, social and economic history, psychology, religion, commerce, These all belong together for the humanist scholar. These are the other subjects in his title, or at least they in part refer to these. When we are concerned with human things, we have to be concerned with these involvements. And he says that an individual scholar cannot hope to acquire the necessary breadth on his or her own So my father invited the scholar in any discipline to open his or her studies beyond itself and towards the work of others. The university cannot, he suggests, long survive when it is made up of watertight departments. However, as I mentioned, there's still something of this watertight cloistering effect in his own argument too. The inaugural moments he would like to champion, the moments that provide subjects for discussion and matters for democratic debate of the sort that he really wants to preserve and to make, are not, he thinks, well-suited to a general audience. He says, for example, that he would have really liked to, have to lecture on a Spanish literary topic. <laughs> This is the sort of thing he would introduce in his own seminars, tutorials and classes with students who are themselves learning Spanish. And he clearly worries that what he cherishes most in academic life and in the modest and shrinking contribution of the inaugural moment is inevitably lost in the occasion of the general public event and hence that the latter has what he calls very dubious utility. Of course, this goes along with his experience of what was actually taking place on such occasions. All that is left of the enigmatic asymmetries of learning is a one-way street that is condescending and superior. It is all, to use a French expression he didn't use but seems to have had in view throughout, it's all de haut en bas, from high to low. And I think he's absolutely right. And in fact, I think it's sometimes worse. There is a variant of this appalling form and format which he didn't mention, but which is equally sickening. The inaugural lecture that is De Haute en Haute, (laughs) where in an inaugural lecture with a general public audience, the well-disciplined speaker speaks only to his or her discipline. Or even more narrowly still, speaks to and addresses the part of the discipline that he or she thinks most worthy of attention and future funding, i.e. his or her own part. I've witnessed this, and it's unspeakably fruitless, and indeed, as my father says, of very dubious utility. It's just as if my father had spoken on a Spanish literary topic to an audience with no Spanish, and in Spanish. (laughs) So I think my father was right about the specialist fanatics, but I think his own anxious aversion to the general public event and his preference for the democracy of the seminar has a similarly confined complexion. And yet, his own movement in Rondo perhaps shows that another kind of inaugural lecture might still be possible. Indeed, I would want to push this effort to push beyond sonata forms, beyond what he had hoped for in 1964. Yes, the inaugural lecture should never be an event in which the professor shows how brilliantly clever he or she is in her discipline. Yes, let's abolish that. But I think there is still something here to be saved, a sort of promising hope, at least. Namely, that the inaugural lecture, as the figure of a publicly declared promise from within the university, that the university and its interests should go beyond the cloistered walls of the university and its interests. My father's lecture called for broadening out, too, and in a passing remark, he welcomed the fact that departments of language and literature at Southampton in the early 60s could combine already, not only with one another, but with history and philosophy. The work of criticism in literary studies, he said, cannot live a cloistered existence. Yes, but there are cloisters and cloisters, and cloisters within cloisters. And the image of the cloistered existence of criticism is one that at a higher level, my father's lecture tends in some way to sustain rather than challenge. Despite the Rondo form, everything happens as if what he called the essential business of the university, its basic interest, which he identifies closely with throwing light on its subjects and illuminating phenomena. This essential business seems constantly to circle back into itself, as if the only bridges to be built were within and remain within the university. But perhaps it is here with the reference to history and philosophy and in the language of light and illumination that a quiet but crucial link is made to general publicness and its virtues. An umbilical link to the old Europe-wide lights of the Enlightenment or Lumière, die Aufklärung, I want to speak about this light of the Enlightenment, in closing, and it will take me towards a conclusion that is not a concrete proposal and not a statement of any truth either, but to an inaugural pledge. So what is enlightenment? Well, we have to begin with Kant. And interestingly enough, Kant, of course, wrote an essay called What is Enlightenment? And Kant begins his great essay on the question, what is enlightenment, with a dystopian vision, uncannily, like the setup encouraged by the dismal inaugural lecture, as my father described it. A setup in which people's understanding is wholly given over to the authority of another, and where certain others gladly step in to set themselves up as their guardian. But Kant does not think it must be so. He says, the quote marks are his, not every man of learning will want to see those they speak to to remain docile creatures. On the contrary, some will want instead to disseminate the spirit of courage to use your own understanding. That's the spirit of the Enlightenment itself. And they will see it as their calling to bind themselves to the cause of what Kant called, the freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters as a man of learning addressing the entire reading public. When we bind ourselves to this cause, we will defend to the end a distinction between a community or a culture in which some things must simply be accepted as given and a beyond question, and a community or culture in which argument is expected, and nothing is finally beyond challenge. There is in this, as the German philosopher Edmund Husserl put it in the 1930s, the resolve not to accept unquestioningly any pre-given opinion or tradition this resolve, that nothing be beyond question. Husserl notes, doesn't fall from a tree. It goes back to the critical stance inaugurated by philosophy in ancient Greece. And this beginning gives birth to what he calls a tremendous, momentous cultural transformation. It is the birth of a culture which, for the first time in human history is not bound to the soil of any national or regional tradition whatsoever. And this culture radiates out from its Greek origin as a completely universalisable model. And henceforth is inseparable from what Husserl calls a completely new form of supranationality. And within history, and opening this history as a universal history. This is also the supranationality that inaugurates the space that we now call Europe. So philosophy is not only an example of the sort of matter that preoccupies this new cultural formation. Philosophy is not confined, for example, to the task of offering a conceptual clarification of the distinction between the public and non-public use of reason. No, the idea of the freedom to make public use of one's reason is, in a certain way, philosophy's own inaugural speech. Binding philosophy to the public cause, to the possibility of res publica, binding it to the enlightened virtue of the public use of reason for all humanity. For humanity freed then from domination by all orthodoxy orthodoxy and authority, including religious dogmatics and tradition-bound custom or prejudice. Philosophy, not only working for that cause, but causing it to be. The very idea of such an enlightened space is philosophical through and through. And keeping faith with this cause cannot be limited to the cloisters of the university either. Indeed, it never has been. Its happening there, in the university, has fundamentally irrigated the culture as a whole. For example, it's been absolutely fundamental to what Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, called the virtues of procedural secularism in society, a form of social life Freed from domination by religious or external authority. And this is a setup which, he says, and I completely agree, which alone guarantees the kind of political freedom I am concerned to define and to secure. Now, when there are, as there are, interests with no interest in the university's commitment to the public use of reason. A certain cloistered protection of the university remains absolutely essential. (coughs) Derrida called this the right to a certain sovereignty and independence of the university. But this need not exclude what too often my father's text diminishes. A movement within the university of its own transgression. Within it, transgressing it. Where the essential business of the university is not conceived as exclusively concerned with what goes on within its protected walls. And perhaps the inaugural lecture can belong symbolically to the cause of this general publicness. Derrida cites what Cicero tells us about the profession of faith internal to professorial responsibility in philosophy, emphasising that for Cicero... It is not simply a question of practising or teaching philosophy in some currently pertinent fashion, but is inseparably tied to what he calls a pledge. To pledge oneself with a public promise, to devote oneself publicly, to give oneself over to philosophy, to bear witness or even to fight for it. And the whole university, in its ambition to shed light and to illuminate in ways freed from domination by all external authority or orthodoxy, whether financial or religious or ideological, follows in the wake of this philosophical promise. Every professor is something of a philosopher here. Each one inheriting and reactivating the inaugural pledge to provide subjects for discussion and matters for democratic debate thereby opening and keeping open the university as the unique place in which everyone has an unconditional freedom to speak and to speak by one's own lines the truth. Discussing this unconditional freedom, Derrida notes that Kant wanted both to advance it and to limit it. This freedom is unconditional for Kant just so long as it takes place in the inside of the university. It has to happen there. But it will always be a kind of fantasy limit to think that it could be enclosed there. It needs the within, the protected within. But it always gets out. Even as an ideal limit, it is weak and unreliable. But it is something that Derrida supposes and wishes for us today that we revoke. Calling us to affirm that in the university today, he says, one cannot and must not let oneself be enclosed within the inside of the the university. Having been awarded the public status of a man of learning the professor, man or woman, is then the one who affirms the freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters as a man of learning addressing the entire reading public. And to affirm this is not a, this not only in public but to and with the general public. And if you hear in that some sort of reference to the ambitions of the Forum for European Philosophy, you wouldn't be wrong. Yet in a manner strangely reminiscent of Kant's limitation, my father in 1964 held off marking this moment, remaining anxious about the academic public event to a general audience unconvinced by the inaugural gesture of an inaugural lecture. Now, as I hinted at the start, his anxieties were not only motivated by the way the lecture setup lent itself to the sonata form, but in addition, and in fact first of all, to the way this retrogressive form was being mirrored and mag- magnified by modern media technologies... And especially the television production values that were just then beginning to make academic matters public on a completely new, indeed potentially unlimited scale. This project seemed to him singularly unpromising. television producers may still think that there is something to be learned from putting arts lecturers on a platform with words and a background as irrelevant to their subject as the distant prospect of some Pinko Greystone College or Fellows College room. The problem is not that television was trying to make to take what matters in academic life outside academic life, something I can hardly believe he would object to, but that it did so in a way that, like the inaugural lecture, only stressed its separation by framing it with either meaningless decor or the exterior or interior marks of Oxbridge isolation. It is a staging of academic life as anything but part of democratic debate, still less a force that might inaugurate it. Well it wasn't until 1969 that Kenneth Clark's Civilization which some of you may know took an academic voice out of the studio and into the world he was talking about and it was not until 1972 with John Berger's Ways of Seeing that the sometimes too uncritical celebration of the European canon in art and literature was itself provided as a subject for public discussion, Berger's series, however, however assertive, dogmatic, and ideological it was itself in its own delivery, at least contributed to shining another light on the Enlightenment that has come down to us, marking and remarking the effective naturalization. This is what he saw in the canonization of the European canon. Too often, a certain kind of effective naturalization of a pervasive ethnocentrism and its androcentrism and its eurocentrism and even its anthropocentrism. Well, we're learning that replacing a meaningless decor with a meaningful one can also be a stage for the assertive, the dogmatic, the ideological and the hierarchical. And we are learning that finding the right distance between academic life and the wider culture that it both sustains and is sustained by still remains, like democracy itself, to be thought. We are learning to let learn still. And the task of thinking, the task of the inaugural moment of the academic contribution is therefore not over. We are still learning to find forms and formats through which, as my dad put it, a language and terms of reference common to speaker and listener can be elaborated, communicated, taught, tutored and make its way both in and from there beyond the university. Against the crazy faux-radicalism of those who think today we can and should now reject Europe's classical heritage, Derrida insisted that the ancient canons of Europe's humanistic learning ought to be protected at any price. But he also called for a new concept of the humanities, one which would inherit and cultivate this enlightened culture anew, and in a newly discriminating way, proposing subjects for discussion and matters for democratic debate that have remained for too long embedded in the fabric of the very cloisters that have also freed the space for their overcoming. Such discrimination and selection, proposing other subjects other subjects <laughs> for discussion and other matters for democratic debate, is perhaps the inaugurally progressive gesture of the university itself. And both with my father and beyond him, I hereby pledge myself to its cause. Thank you very much.
2: Much, Professor Glendinning. Um, Shall we take some questions from the audience? If you could wait for the mic to come to you before you start speaking, that would be great. One over there. Hi, thank you for such an interesting talk. Uh, I think you were talking about enlightenment and the tools of enlightenment. I believe, after my own personal research, that places like Cambridge and Oxbridge are anti-enlightenment for some of the reasons that you have uh, talked about there, that the uh, tools to what philosophy is and education are uh, totally controlled by those two universities and therefore those tools which would give you access to jobs in democracy like journalism and being an MP, etc., are controlled by those schools, not totally, of course, but in an unproportional uh, way relative to the rest of the uh, the country and what those schools are such a small proportion of. So do you think that Cambridge and Oxford are anti-enlightenment?
0: I don't really actually follow why it would be... I mean, it could be... I mean, for argument's sake, right, I mean, I, we, we, we just have to... Uh, um, hold off a, a, a sort of final judgment but uh, for argument's sake what if what they were teaching in those spaces was precisely that yes yeah, so uh, they do
2: teach enlightenment to themselves but then close the door to all of uh, access to that uh, knowledge and way to run a country and to be part of a country
0: yes I see what you're saying but If if all those people have. Hold on to it for a bit. (laughs) If all those people who've been there then go out and are, as it were, enlightened people in their turn. I'm not saying this is exactly how it is at all, but I'm just saying, for the sake of argument, why does your argument work if what was going on there was precisely that enlightened education?
2: Because they're taught enlightenment in a particular sort of way. Right. And it's very exclusive, and what it does is reinforce. The uh, notion of Cambridge and oxbridge as places that are actually given a, a decent and fair education to the people it's a betrayal in fact from the uh, lecturer to right. the uh, student and sets in course uh, history which uh, which is continually repeating itself
0: well it's, for, it's absolutely for sure that there's a, there is a certain kind of overrepresentation right so let, we could we could accept that as given that you have uh, a disproportionate amount of people in senior positions all over Britain who went to those universities. Uh, now, what, what are you saying with respect to the way they do their business once they've left? Are you saying that they have leave that in light, those enlightened virtues behind them?
2: Well, they're not going to start questioning how come they're always getting particularly good jobs. Mm. This is a question that is not going to... It's a question they have. I've yeah. met them and I talk to them regularly, and they just say, oh, it just sort of is the way it is, that's how life is, we get the jobs in these positions. Yeah. And actually, it's actually a political uh, manoeuvrings from people who are like the architects of yeah. how to run a country.
0: There was, there was something uh, which yeah. was spoken of a lot when I was growing up, with the old boys' network kind of thing, that you had this sort of yeah. closure on high-ranking... Um, jobs in, in civil service in politics in journalism for for these people uh, now I, th- I personally think you're probably right that there is the, the, the proportion is disproportionate insofar as it sustains itself in that way in that kind of old boy network I think it would be um, it's been interesting to see both a certain decline of that within various sectors but also a sort of uh, con- continuation of that in others, and I think that in politics today, in in party politics today, there is for sure still some considerable overrepresentation. I'm sure there is in lots of places. We on the uh, just as it were in its defence, uh, for which I need to give none. Um, there are very clever people who go through there as well, so it's not always like. <laughs> <laughs> It's not always like that you should say, well, they should yeah. never have got it because they're not clever. But I mean, if they're clever, they're clever.
2: Yes, but they're not uh, representative of a country they actually live in. Yes, that's, oh, that's from a wonderfully
0: it. interesting problem. We should probably stop talking to each other in a minute. But yeah. um, I just, yeah. just one, one thing on that I do think that uh, issues of representation in Britain, and not just in Britain, are, are a really sharp end of our politics today where uh, more and more. Um, with shifting away, precisely in a way from that Oxbridge-dominated model where there are, what were they called, um, um, uh, a political class as it were, the, the, the people who uh, deserved to be um, in positions of authority and um, I mean, sometimes just called a ruling class in the, in, in the post-war period. And I don't mean that in the kind of Marxist way, I mean the ordinary people might think that oh, there's a ruling class and that we're down here but increasingly uh, through the whole of the 20th century into the 21st century there's, uh, there's been a sort of um, erosion of that sense of the properness, you don't think so? I, I, well i tell you where I see it I see it in the fact that there's a, a increasing um, dissatisfaction with political parties generally because they're not me they're not like me I don't recognise these people at all People who, you know, if you're, if you're a woman, you see 20 men wearing suits and ties, or even Syriza just wearing suits. And, um, and it, you know, it's not over. Uh, but it's not, um, it doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a kind of unshiftable fabric of our society. And I've, I think there'd be huge changeovers in the way in which our society is. Sort of thought of itself politically. One of one of the sort of huge moments in that actually was, um, funnily enough, Morris Fraser at the front will agree with this. It was Margaret Thatcher's government which which sort of spoke up the idea that people who weren't from those uh, backgrounds could could uh, get involved too. Okay, that's enough. Question in
2: the front row. Good
0: question. Oh, it is Morris, Morris Fraser, <laughs> who I just mentioned.
3: Thanks, thanks very much. Um, Simon, I thought it was, it was a great talk and got me thinking about a lot of things, and I'm not going to inflict all my thoughts on everybody, but two particular thoughts were prompted. One in the context about the, the format of delivery of um, great thoughts, shall we say, in, as, as classically epitomized in the, in the inaugural lecture. And... Um, uh, well it seems to me that certainly since the early 60s which when I was only a toddler at the time I hasten to add um, that the tentative exploration of new formats of delivering knowledge, wisdom and building public engagement including with, with ideas which were thought to be perhaps a bit too cerebral or beyond the reach of lots of people um, it has been quite striking and I would have thought really quite successful um, before Ken, Kenneth Clark's um, Civilization you referred to. Uh, and in fact, the new head of arts at BBC is going to come and give his rationale for why a new series of um, civilization is being commissioned by the BBC at a cost of something like £8 million pounds, uh, at the LSE Literary Festival or the, the event on high culture and the Western Canon which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Um, if you think of, I mean, AJP, the historian AJP Taylor of course, uh, the great popular historian, a very serious academic historian, um, he started talks uh, from, I think it was really around from about 1964 to 66, um, uh, sitting in the studio, talking to camera, not up on a podium, not talking in some, uh, in a particularly uh, with great gravitas or the things one might associate with that, that uh, classical august way of imparting knowledge uh, with his, um, his, his twinkly smile, uh, his a, a tweed jacket, so that was fairly Oxbridge-ish, but I mean a spotty bow tie, um, uh, chuckling as he went. Uh, but this, pr- this series attracted huge audiences, ran for about three hours. He talks to camera about English history. And then we can think of, well, now then in our time. Pointy heads talking for an hour or three quarters of an hour in a studio. Who would have thought that that could work as successfully as it does, and it has an audience of millions. So, the, so the engagement beyond the, the ivory tower in the most traditional classic stentorian type of way. And I think we have, um, I think we've made a lot of progress, um, and I wonder whether that, uh, whether what your what your thoughts are on on that. We've gone well beyond the inaugural lecture format quite some time ago, and I think we're having quite a lot of. Um, success with it. So the other point i make more bri- more more briefly. Well, not let me, about me take that one yes, first. And okay, then you please, come back. Yes. 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 Please. In a conversation. Yes.
0: Um, a conversation. Um, the, uh, the development of um, as it were uh, the, the 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 broadcast or the televisation or now through uh, uh, the internet, the world wide web, and so on. That sort of uh, presence outside the university of a, of a kind of academic voice. Um, ab- you're absolutely right. And, and I think, in fact, the, as it were, the Internet is making this even more so, where, where you get academic bloggers. There's a, a, a professor behind you who has how many followers on Twitter? Oh, I don't dare to say that. Go on. <laughs> oh, no. Thousands. 10000 No, 34,000. Ten- no, 34,000. 34, right, <laughs> so uh, this, this kind of uh, uh, self-limitation um, of, of as it were, the classical university, which already was not real. I mean, it was already going beyond itself, even if it tried to limit itself. Is certainly um, on a scale now which is absolutely unprecedented, and I also think uh, in in um, in forms which are increasingly um, uh, effective. Now, that it's. Uh, I remember. You may remember too. Um, Melvin Bragg when he came to the LSE to talk about we were talking about thinking in public somebody said it's all dumbed down now it's all dumbed down and he thumped the table, he was saying absolutely not you know there's more events going on now than ever before and it's not just sort of uh, sugar candy given over in terms which you know you all already understand anyway or making it so easy and so on, it's challenging ideas and one of the things he really loved, the particularly with the British public, they challenge back. So instead of being sort of, you know, you have the nice uh, um, professor there with all the wide, word, wide words to a passive audience, this not passive audience at all would respond back, saying, oh, I didn't agree with that at all. You know, it's brilliant <laughs> that, that, that that's the way it is. So uh, I think there are there, there is, you're right, a huge explosion. I think we haven't uh, finished thinking about how um, this... Interface between the within and the beyond can be done. One of the other, one of the other great examples of this is the Open University. What a, you know, an absolutely stunning example. Um, and if you think back to its early, I don't know, if probably most of you are too young to remember this, but there were. Um, <laughs> if you look at the early televised versions of the Open University where, do, do people remember, men, men in very, very wide collars and, and long, long hair. <laughs> and, and they, and it was, but they, it wasn't just that that was odd. It was, it, there was something odd about the whole, the whole thing. But it's much better done now. And I mean, there can be, there can be faults with that where it, where it becomes too cosy. I, I must say there are certain, as it were, popularisations of philosophy or intellectual life which turn my stomach still and, 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 you know, so it, and, and there is a sort of um, populist genre which uh, really delivers very little at all because it, because it isn't a challenge there's no provocation and there's very little um, uh, mm. movement out of the university it just takes place within the space where people already are and I rather uh, dislike that anyway so,
3: sorry, I'll be... I, I, th- thank, thank you, um, Simon. And I, I agree with all oh, well, that. You know what, I should oh, mention okay, the Forum
0: for I'll European be... Philosophy there, which does an incredible <laughs> job of doing this, <laughs> bringing it out as you can see right now. My <laughs> another
3: question to you, Simon, though, is really about the, the idea of a university as, as an autonomous yeah. space, yeah. Um, subject with its own statutes... And, uh, and, and, and the way it jealously guards that space, which is something within the Western tradition uh, we would all, I guess in this room, we would champion. Um, but when you um, uh, when we see the sort of tension that we're seeing at the moment between you, some universities in Europe, spectacularly the case in Italy uh, where whose universities have been right at the heart of that shared European intellectual space um, and um, and have really have nurtured the idea of Europe as a shared space, where since the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, um, uh, pilgrims, travellers, scholars, of course, shared in that space. And yet we have this: the, the university autonomy now um, uh, actually leading to breaches of the whole idea of, of, well, of the, the EU law in the context of the single market. So you have the European Commission, the European Court of Justice, constantly arraigning and indicting uh, and, uh, and, uh, and arraigning um, the uh, un- Italian universities for breaking single market law because it is impossible for a non-Italian to get a proper contract and remuneration in Italian university. So, um, and the Italian government telling the European Commission, well, we do our best, but what can we do? The University of Padua, the University of Bologna were telling us, our statutes go back to 1342. You're not going to tell us, we're not going to be told what kind of contracts uh, to offer and how much, how much, how much to pay. Um, and they invoke yeah. subsidiarity, that wonderful principle of decentralisation in the EU, and they gar- they're guarding their autonomy, their their private space. And, uh, I must say that that's is that is not a betrayal. Is it, that not a betrayal it, it of true, their obligation
0: clearly, to the wider Europe and the shared that, space, which is Europe? Clearly, in that case, there is the, the, the principle that, that, as it were, nothing is beyond question, is <laughs> not being taken up, but, and and there's a huge distinction there between the the kind of um, mm-hmm. Unconditional freedom that I was talking about within the university, and the university protecting itself in in that kind of way. I don't think they they relate at all. It's a, okay. i uh, yeah, uh, in the
4: third row. Uh,
5: yes, thank you very much for the talk, Professor Glendinning. Um, I think I feel very much in agreement with you at the level of form but not in agreement with you at the level of content and I'd like to try and say what I mean by that. That I think that the, the, you're right in saying that the form that discussions are taking is, is becoming more and more um, liberal and progressive uh, and open. Uh, so... Um, I I don't have a problem with what you're saying at that level. But I can remember being at an FEP event some years ago uh, where um, I raised the spectre of Hegel. Um, And uh, the response I got from a professional philosopher who who will remain nameless... Oh, no. uh, (laughs) No, I, I, I'm, I, I'm going I'm to let him remain nameless. Was uh, As soon as I'd uttered the word Hegel, uh, be, and before I'd finished what I had to say, he came out with uh, a, a volley of um, points against taking Hegel's uh, philosophy seriously. Right. Um, and, uh, y- you know, th- this to me is, I mean... It's not that Hegel is the only person who has anything to say about truth in Western philosophy, but there's so much rambling around, if you don't mind me saying, philosophers like Derrida, uh, Husserl, Wittgenstein... You're just doing you know. to me what he did to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, well you, 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 you're in a better position, a stronger position here. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but the, you know, there's so much what I would call rambling around and there's so much strategic avoidance of certain philosophers and I think Hegel is certainly one of those that I think at the level of content the debate has still not risen to the necessary level.
0: Well, right. Interesting. Well, uh, first of all, uh, a philosopher dismissing another philosopher is ordinary. Um, however, it does get very heated, doesn't it? And, uh, and we, of course you're also looking there at something that the Forum for European Philosophy is, has a great sort of anxious concern with, which is the British or Anglo, Anglo-American English language culture of philosophy which has for most of the 20th century wanted not only to hear nothing of Hegel, um, but to regard the sort of work that he pursued as, as in a certain way another subject or not even proper philosophy and and an ambition of the forum in a way as both Dan- Daniel was saying at the beginning was was to try to broaden the space, as my father might have put it you know to uh, to regard um, the European heritage as something that can have a conversation with itself and doesn't have to be divided against itself. So the fact that somebody would have dismissed Hegel is a, a probably of no surprise to almost anyone. Um, it's what has been done in Britain for most of the, t- for the last 100 years or so. Uh, there was a period, I'm sure you know, that, that Hegel was quite popular in Britain in, in, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, I I think well done to you for bringing it up. Um, And uh, I'll ramble on with Derrida and (laughs) Russell if you don't mind. (laughs) Uh,
6: Gentleman also in the third row wearing a black jumper, and then the lady in the fourth row.
4: Simon. Simon, uh, I really enjoyed your uh, inaugural lecture. Congratulations. I want to ask a a question. I want to ask you to speculate about a a term that, the title of your father's lecture, that disappeared in your lecture. Uh, I I, I see that you're you're responding to your disciplinary uh, honour and desire to defend philosophy, Um, and um, you said very kindly that all professors were uh, all professors were philosophers. Uh, but, you're, but I wonder a little bit about the missing term of literature in your title. Uh, F. R. Leavis, of course, at the same, more at the same time, gave a lecture, a series of essays called The Critic as Anti-Philosopher. And I, I wonder if you sort of speculate, to think about roles of things that might not fit into your, your pledge or your gesture towards the Enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right, for a start, this lecture, uh, through its main passages, is, is focused almost exclusively with literature and poetry and Spanish poetry and uh, mostly gathered together in order to respond to the C.P. Snow two cultures idea. So what he wanted to show with his gathering of literature into his embrace in that lecture was to try to show that snow's representation of the literary mind as anti-science was a perverse exaggeration that it was never just as so sort of um, binary and divided as that. He interestingly gives examples of literary literature which is anti-science and funnily enough, he says that the main impetus for that lay in Bergson, in philosophy, to, for the examples he took. So from Spanish poetry, there was this influence from French philosophy. Now, that's uh, perhaps by the by, but the, the, the question would be would the literary critic, what he often called the literary critic, um, have a different position with respect to the pledge that I was talking about, uh, that is, pledging themselves to a a certain publicness. And I think it's very interesting, if you look at literature in this case, because one of the things that one might want to uh, rethink about the literary critic is that their position is essentially symmetrical to the scientist, where there's a poem and the professor, as it were, is going to tell you the truth of the poem, and that there's a purely theoretical um, work, just as the scientist has this purely theoretical work. But I think that the movement of literature and criticism and philosophy have been in a direction in which the... um, the distinction between, as it were, the critic and the work, for, for a start, one could be both. There are lots of uh, uh, people who do lit- literary criticism. I'm actually, I'm looking at one. People who do literary criticism and write novels, or people who write um, uh, uh, um, literary biography and um, write criticism and so on. But, these distinctions aren't as pure as they were. and so, and so And I think one of the... Dimensions of the pledge, as it were, that one would get in literature, would be uh, through the the thought that the literary critic doesn't have to um, has this performative voice, as it were. It's not just uh, telling the truth of the text, as it were, digging out the meaning of the text, but there is itself a dimension that um, flows beyond um, knowledge and truth, as it were, and there. As this inaugural moment itself, right? It's self-producing as a sort of literary object. And I think that's uh, all to be welcomed. It's not something my dad talked about, though. Lady in the fourth row. Um,
6: I, can, I can speak about... Please.
0: I think it's for the uh, uh, Podcast. podcast.
6: Thank you for a great talk. Um, I want to pick up on this idea of within and beyond of academia, right? Because it seems that once you go outside this great and secure place that we've been trained to be as, as a student and then you have to face the beyond, the first thing you bumped into is politics, for example. And in a way it seems that university or at least the way we conceive universities nowadays, that is a very en- enlightened idea, is that this idea of tolerance and not having, confusing, having strong opinions with, certain, with radicality or being ideological because you have strong views on certain things. But we are in this cloister where we don't have such strong opinions because it's about debating, it's about um, tolerating others. And in a way then you feel that universities, if they want to go beyond, then we shouldn't confuse tolerance with neutrality. So how do you see that, how close is to close such that university can remain autonomous and critical and independent, but then again with a view to the beyond that is you know, dealing with the real thing and getting your hands dirty and doing things if your interest is, for example, a political one?
0: Yeah. I, I, I was reaching for this uh, copy of the lecture but I can't find it immediately that, that uh, I did actually have a little section on this when I was drafting this uh, where my father writes about um, that the academic space is characterised by an attitude that he called tolerant but not uncritical. Right? Now maybe that's what you're describing there. Now what I'm unclear about is why that wouldn't itself be in a certain way a universalisable model I mean principles of toleration that belong not being uncritical not just sort of tolerating anything uh, seem to me to be as embedded in the university as they could be but also to be precisely the sort of thing that one might hope would be irrigating a culture too that um, I mean Toleration is uh, you know a great academic topic, but it 's also a, a genuine political moment and and so i'm not i 'm not sure it 's certainly true that it's maybe hard to get heard in a space which is very noisy and intolerant and wants only its own voice to be heard there was there, there was a uh, a part of this talk I did cut out yesterday where I tried to specify the idea of democratic debate that my father was talking about and um, I quoted myself so I thought well, that was crap So, I, uh, <laughs> um, but it was uh, it's the idea that that what I like best, what I admire most in a discussion and in democracy is not that it gives an me an opportunity to say what I think, but that it's an opportunity for the other to say what they think, and that that openness uh, is inseparable from toleration, not uncritical, but inseparable from toleration, and I think probably ultimately inseparable from democracy, at least as I want to understand it. So, yes, you're right, you're going into a noisy space, where the other... uh, those virtues are perhaps scandalously not recognized. But um, I, I think, really, ultimately, it, it remains for us to defend them, defend them.
7: Just staying with that for a moment, um, Derrida um, name checks three. Three famous uh, yeah. philosophers, Plato, um, Augustine, and, and uh, Nietzsche, none of whom were Democrats. No, true. Um, and I'm thinking of last week when, when Marine Le Pen was... was fate, she, she managed to speak at the Oxford Union,
1: yeah.
7: uh, but there was a large demonstration outside demanding that she not be allowed to speak. Yeah. And I'm just wondering um, if, to, to how broad the universe, the university... Uh, milieu is there seems to be a real conform, uh, conformity amongst all major universities in the world, the European North American, British um, and the and people go from one to the next and all that which even uh, even reinforces that. My point is um, why isn't there a greater sh- discussion, debate uh, Inclusive of the extremes within philosophy and within political thinking and economics. For instance, um, when I was a, an undergraduate, Marxism was, was, you know, was a, a legitimate discourse. Now it's just dismissed. Mm. Um, thinking on the far, where why is, it, why is it so inadmissible for people to discuss and think theor- uh, f- philosophically uh, along the lines of Nietzsche? Or the far right. It's just, it's you know, it's people don't want to discuss these things, and I I would propose that the the attraction of these of parties like UKIP and in the political sphere, UKIP and the Green Party. I mean, if you mention them to people, generally they say, oh, they're they're goofy ideas. They're they're you know they're wacko. Um, But they they don't even seem to get explored.
0: Yeah. Um, I I mean, first of all, I, I know in my own seminars. I make it very clear to my students that they really can say what they want, right? And that if if somebody has a view that in in a general public space would be regarded as wacko or whatever you say, they mustn't feel intimidated by that. And and even and that's true, even though even in a in a seminar or a class, uh, there does get you do get this sort of tendency towards a a kind of. Um, uh, well, towards a kind of liberal consensus, right? Uh, but I, I, I want to be able to say that this space is really, really open in, in that way in the class. And I think it's um, sad that uh, a Nietzsche society is banned or, or that a, a politician from a leading party in France, however appalling she is, is uh, they, people try to prevent these people speaking. I, there, in, in, in one of the reports I read on that, um, one of the student protesters said that, and this was almost exactly the wrong thing to think. Um, we don't need the other person there because we can, we can, as it were, articulate for ourselves that our view. I mean, that's so sort of uh, solipsistic that, as it were, exposure, encounter uh the um What takes place in the encounter is no interest to them at all i mean it's it 's dismal um I think you 're probably right that uh universities are becoming m- more sensitive to this um anxiety not 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 to meet um the the voices that they don 't like. And, and that is bad. I think you're probably wrong to say that Marxism would be amongst them, though. I think, um, generally speaking, uh, Marx is admissible, as is Hegel. <laughs> yeah, but you
5: never
0: get to discuss him. Oh, no, that's not true. That's really not true. I, I mean, well, it's almost true. Um, uh, Claudia, did we discuss Hegel? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just not true. They're, of course, there are... Uh, um, I mean, it's funny that I was saying I was reading Nietzsche in a class. I was going to say I did have it in, in the original draft that um, I, that I would have to remind you that I'm in the European Institute and not the philosophy department, where they certainly wouldn't be reading Nietzsche. But that's, a, that's an odd... That's an old, it, you know th- that's because of that setup I was talking about earlier about the sort of institutionalization of philosophical differences within the English-speaking world. And in fact, Hegel's an example, if you really go back to Hegel, uh, of somebody who is becoming increasingly admissible within analytic philosophy. And there'd be a lot of people writing in uh, ethics, particularly, and political philosophy who would take that very seriously. Of course, what's also the case is that for a long time, uh, Anglo-American analytic philosophy was um, was one in which social philosophy, um, ethics was itself marginal, and I think that's interestingly less the case today than it was.
5: But he's admissible in the tame form.
0: Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in the, I don't know. I, I think everything's a bit of a tame form in a university. That's pretty- that's pretty I mean, <laughs> uh,
5: you know, I mean, I mean, the main themes of Hegel's philosophy, dialectics, the yeah. absolute. Yeah. You know, they don't get discussed.
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> 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 I can I just the answer back that road? one? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Did yeah. I say? L'illustration, right? <laughs> yes, you did. <indeed. laughs> um,
6: I want to ask you about the other term that was in your father's lecture, the sciences, which yeah. you maybe mentioned, but I maybe missed it. But um, I'm going to be a bit like the devil's advocate, and I want to ask you, if the universities are the centers of expertise, they say they are, and you know, you're an expert, and that's why you're here talking to us, um, what's wrong with them having closed walls? Because if you look at the case of the sciences, where you know only the experts, and this picks on the first question as well about Oxford and Cambridge, you know if the best journalists come out of Oxford and Cambridge because they have a system that facilitates that, what's wrong with that? Why, you know, why do we need molecular biologists to throw the world down and make everyone understand what they're doing, as long as it works?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting that there may indeed be kind of distinction one would want to draw between the theoreticism of science and something in the humanities which has always been beyond the theoretical. It's it's obviously the most classical way in which that was put was in fact in Marx where he would say roughly speaking that uh, um, academics have previously only produced work what we want is an event, right? And one of the things that I think the humanities, in a certain way, lends itself towards is making an event. And I wanted to say about the inaugural, is itself always an inaugural event. Now, I don't think, actually, science is ever completely excluded from that, uh, that inaugural event character. But there is, as one might call a theoreticism to science which lends itself precisely to a much more enclosed community and quite in some ways quite properly. But what, there, there are interesting ways in which it moves too. I mean science too uh, like philosophy would, met, would be uh, grounded on something like the universality of its method and so would have this supranational character uh, not rooted in any um, national or regional tradition and these are these are There's a sort of uh, there's a sort of politics of that. I mean, or a sociality of that which one shouldn't ignore. One of the writers I admire enormously, French poet essayist. Um, uh, uh, who am I thinking of? <laughs> Paul- <laughs> Valerie Paul <laughs> Valerie. Who <laughs> that much interest? Uh, Paul <laughs> Valerie, who who says that. That the the achievements of European science so massively outweigh the achievements of European politics precisely because of its capacity to work beyond the national, to work beyond the the narrow institution. Now, you, Morris, earlier talked about how uh, a university in Italy is trying to absolutely seal itself in, but the science that's going on there won't be doing that. The science that's going on there. Will be communicating with scientists all over the world, and there's a, there's a, the massive achievements of science. I think must be um, uh, understood within the context of that supranationality, and I think that, that this is this is itself event making. I mean, it produces a community. Of course, you're right that the community of scientists, in a certain way, has a certain narrowness. So put one one word, last word on that, that the. Uh, the relation between science and the public has become one that's um, uh, that, that relationship is produced through um, popular science so magazines and programs where um, the ideas of the scientists are distilled into a consumable form for a wider public And I'm sure that that's not totally inappropriate even though sometimes when it's done I find it difficult, but um, in philosophy and in literature, I think in a way related to what I was saying to Robert earlier about the uh, interchangeability at a certain level between the critic and the author, is that in li- just taking philosophy, for example, when, when we do things in the Forum for European Philosophy, we absolutely don't want to have this popular format r- relation where the difficult ideas of the philosopher are fed out to a public audience where you have the philosopher here and the public there. When we're thinking about what we do in 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 philosophy in in a general public space is that everybody is a philosopher. Right? Just as in poetry, uh, you don't have the poets here and people who are exclusively readers here. Everybody, as it were, could be a poet. Now a lot of people are really, really poor poets and a lot of people are really you know find it difficult to engage in philosophy, but but that distinction, as it were, the break between the scientific community and the non-scientific community doesn't really exist for philosophy. It doesn't really exist for literature. Where, of course, you have the, the canonical moment that I was describing, but in a certain way the community reaches in an unlimited way into the, into the space of everyone. There's a, somebody over here... I don't, he made. You going to disagree with me? Uh, no, 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 not at all. Okay, then you can talk. <laughs> Last question.
8: Uh, thanks. Um, it, interestingly enough, actually, Paul Paul Valery said something like. Um, beware of what you're best at, it's bound to be a trap. Oh, yeah. um, and problems, nothing perhaps fails, fails like success. Any, anyway, I, I much enjoyed your uh, hermeneutic retelling of sorting through your father's effects. Yeah. Um, and it seems his, his sentiments very much chime with the um, uh, ethos at the time, this, this new map of learning... And I'm very grateful at being a beneficiary of this interdisciplinary map oh, yeah. of learning yeah. that was taken up by, by uh, some of the new universities then. And, and uh, Asa Briggs went on um, to uh, found, found the OU on that basis. And, and I certainly wasn't averse to seeing the broadcasters in loopy jeans and long hair Delivering, delivering their um, uh, different expertises. Um, history, hi- history reflects, though, continual swings of the pendulum in our dualism of mind and body, um, um, interior and exterior. And it, it wouldn't be unfair to say that really the past 30 years has seen a, um, a progressive eclipse of critical reason by sensation and the elevation of the body, perhaps, rather than any sort of um, integration, uh, dare I say, dialectically, between the sides um, of the binary thinking in which which we define things. You know, looking for the negative in the positive and the positive in the negative. Um, But just going on, you know, we... Uh, I wondered what your go thoughts that, that could I'm you please sorry. get to your question yes just quickly what your thoughts might be about how the university can uh, think against the grain perhaps against this sort of grain yeah. famously just one, just one final thing perhaps we shouldn't forget someone like William Blake wisdom is sold in the desolate market and everything is
0: markets now where
8: none come to buy
0: yeah yeah Well, uh, uh, one way in which you can find a a positive in that is precisely this kind of thing. And the LSE generally and, and universities all over Britain will be having increasingly events after events after events for a general public audience where we're not feeding them sugared pills but exposing them, I hope, to ideas, to thinkers, to thoughts that will be an enrichment of their life and not, not just a, a marketplace of this ideal or that idea.
6: Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I'd like to
2: thank you all for coming and I ask you to join me in thanking Professor Glendinning again.